tech diplomacy is still a fairly fresh concept. In most Western countries, it's a movement for advancing freedom through adopting trusted technology. But as authoritarian regimes like China and Russia continue to preempt technology for nefarious purposes, democratic governments look to the private sector for assistance. Keith Kroc, chairman and co-founder of the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue, tells us what executives can do to help counter the techno-authoritarian playbook. Join us as we discuss why trust is the most important word in any language, the State Department's need for more private sector talent, and a call to action to C-suites for a China contingency plan. You're listening to C-Suite Blueprint, the show for C-suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show. Keith, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, George, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. You know, we're going to talk about some serious topics, but to start things off on maybe a somewhat lighter note, thinking back to when you were at DocuSign back in starting in 2009, did you ever think that in 2022 we would still have fax machines, that they'd still be hanging on here for, for the last drop of blood? You know, I, I thought those would be gone by now. People said that DocuSign would just be a feature of Adobe, but yep. I looked at that as an opportunity because I, I knew we could run the same play that we ran, you know, at Ariba. And now, you know, there's a billion users around the world with DocuSign. Can you talk about running the same play? You know, if I look back at your career, you're, you're such an amazing change agent and a catalyst from from GM to Ariba to DocuSign to, to the Department of State. And, you know, you're the change guy. Uh, but what I find amusing as you look back at all that is there so much, at least it looks like there's a lot of consistency, consistency in your values, consistency in the playbook, and this focus on trust and vigilance and highly performing teams. And I feel like that's just important as a human. And I'm curious where those roots were. Does that go back to the mean, working in your dad's machine shop? Where did, where did you build all that? Yeah, it totally goes back to, you know, my dad had a five-person machine shop in the good times and the tough times. It was just me and him. It was right in small town, Ohio. You know, our, our customers were the big three, and I was welded at the age of 12. And I learned those great Midwestern values, obviously from my dad and work ethic and a great sense of humor. You know, I remember, uh, you know, we would go in on Saturdays and we'd scrub the toilets. And I remember him, like, yelling across the stall the other one, and, and I hated it. And he just goes, Keith! We can't solve world peace, but we can try. You know, I mean, that was the kind of things. You know, I get paid 50 cents an hour and slap me on the back, you know, as we, and like uh, a 10 hour shift, you know, 90 degrees. And you go, Keith, we don't make a lot of money, but we sure have a lot of fun, don't we? You know, I mean, so, you know, you learn that stuff. That's important. That's so important. And, and you know, and now you've co-created the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy uh, at Purdue. You, uh, I know recently uh, the Department of um, Commerce Secretary uh, Raimondo, she was out there and she gave you kudos saying that it was what you're doing with the Clean Network Initiative is brilliant. And I don't care how successful you are. It's nice to hear those kudos, not just for yourself, but, but for your team. You know, I'm, I'm curious if you could expand a little bit on, on why did you co-found this? What's the mission? What are you guys trying to do there? Oh, which, by the way, before you do, what I love about it is that it's nonpartisan. And what I love about it is that it's not just about ideas. You seem to be showing people how to get stuff done, which is just killer. Absolutely. And, you know, 
the first thing I want to say is it's always a team effort, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I've made a living surrounding myself by people who are, are smarter than me. And, and so the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue is, it, it's rapidly becoming the preeminent global authority on tech diplomacy and a thing called tech statecraft, which integrates uh, high-tech uh, business strategies with foreign policy tools based upon this uh, doctrine we created uh, at the State Department called the Trust Doctrine. But the, but the premise of the Institute, it's founded on technology must advance freedom. And te- mm. technology can be used for good purposes, it can be used for evil purposes. And so it's really designed to advance freedom by combating authoritarian regimes like China and Russia. It's interesting. Freedom, you know, when we think about trust, you, you really have the most freedom when you're within that circle of trust, right? When you have that, those norms and everything nailed down for, for trust. And I'm curious, how have, you, how have you used that concept of trust, you know, within this institute and within your career? And, and how do you accelerate it? Sure. You know, I mean, trust has been at the forefront of every company I've built it was the forefront of defeating the Chinese Communist Party's master plan to control the 5G. You know, I really believe that trust is the most important word in any language. You do business with people you trust. You partner with people you trust. You buy from people you trust. You love, you love people you trust. And, you know, at DocuSign, I used to stand up on stage and I would say, look, guys, we're not in the software business. We are in the trust business. We deal with uh, people's most important documents. Those are the ones that you sign. And so we utilized that concept at the State Department when it looked like the Chinese Communist Party their most important company, their backbone for their surveillance state, their national champion, Huawei, and 5G was going to run the table all over the world. And and that means that they cannot just control cell phones, but also power grids, sanitation systems, Internet of Things, manufacturing processes, autonomous vehicles, you name it. And, um, And basically, we use that uh, trust doctor to defeat them. And if there's anything that's a trust business, it's it's 5G. And, you know, one of the interesting things when I was at the State Department, George, was my first 60 bilaterals with foreign ministers or economic ministers or finance ministers. I'd ask them, I'd say, uh, hey, how's your relationship with China? And they would go, well, they're really important. They're an important trading partner. And then it seemed almost every time they looked both ways, like somebody was in the room, and they go, but we don't trust them. And that's Mm -hmm. what rang bells in my head. So if you think about uh, the principles that protect our freedoms, they are things like transparency, reciprocity, respect for rule of law, respect for property of all kinds, respect for human rights, respect for the environment, respect for sovereignty of nations, respect for the for the press you know accountability integrity and all of those equal trust um and what we found george was that um in the uh china and russia have been using those principles against us Mm. and so what we did is in one jujitsu move we flipped them on their back 
and used it against them. In essence, we weaponized the very principles that protect our freedoms, and that all adds up to trust. That's tremendous. You know, I feel like t- too many times you hear the phrase trust takes time, and I feel like that gets translated into that's all trust needs is time, and it's not true. You need the clarity, which it seems like you've done a great job of outlining what does trust mean for us. It needs the accountability, yeah. and it needs the the intentions uh, put forth on that that trust to actually make it happen. You know, when I was digging deep on, on what you did with the um, the the Clear Network Alliance, I found a sentence that I'll read it here because I was impressed. But it said, Croc wanted to be able to move fast, and so we needed to align the multiple agencies and departments within the U.S. government around a competitive U.S. technology strategy. And I laughed because I was like, how the hell are you going to do that fast? <laughs> and then you managed to do it in nine months. So, you know, I'm curious to hear about that. You know, how do you get people bought in and, and how do you push away the naysayers and then actually get something done like that? Yeah, you know, it's really a great, it's a great question because, you know, we know in the business world, the ultimate strategic weapon is speed. Mm. And, you know, and, you know, when you're, when you're disrupting an industry, you're creating a category. It's not the big that's going to eat the small, it's the fast that's going to eat the slow. And so you go into government that not uh, typically goes fast. Um, How did we do that? Well, one of the things we did is we had a strategic plan. We had a playbook. Uh, We got our teams totally aligned. I brought in uh, 12 results-oriented executives and entrepreneurs and technologists from Silicon Valley. I also brought in the dean of engineering at Purdue, who's just been named the next president, to work on our team. And, you know, we knew how to move fast. And so to get that buy-in. And, you know, we we had great clarity. And, you know, what's amazing in the United States government, if you're getting results, then everybody's just going to jump on board. And that's exactly what we did. What I also liked in your approach was you, you recognize that, you know, when we think about bureaucracy and policy, that they were using too many sticks and not enough carrots and that you needed to look at these organizations like the consumer. So you were really bringing what you learned from the, the private sector into the public sector. And, and what was that shift like to start using more carrots? George, it's really a good point because what was interesting for me is that these things we use in Silicon Valley, you know, if you call it practicing economic war crap because it's all about being the category king because player, you know, player, category king gets 80% of the market cap made 80% of the market resources, players mm-hmm. two, three, four, five, they got to fight over their scraps. It just so happens when we play economic warfare out here in Silicon Valley, you have to play by the rules because if you don't have your integrity, you're not going to last very long. Now, uh, in, in the State Department, what we learned, it's like superpowers. So I'll give you an example. So uh, uh, all previous efforts, government efforts, uh, had failed um, uh, in terms of stopping Huawei, they had all the momentum. And as we know, you know, in a rapidly changing market, everybody wants to go with a leader and leadership is not defined by size. It's defined by momentum. Mm -hmm. So our strategic imperative was to reverse their momentum and replace it with ours. And and so uh, what was happening is the previous efforts, you know, it was kind of, I'll be honest, it was like the ugly American going around pounded tables around the world, you know, prime minister saying, don't buy Huawei. And I said, hey, you know what? Why don't we do something different? Why don't we treat these countries and these telecommunication firms like customers? 
And the customer is always right. Nobody likes to be told what to do. So you need a value proposition if you expect somebody to partner with you. So we created a seven-step value proposition as we would go around and talk to these, uh, these countries and telcos. And to me, it just seemed like common sense. But for a lot of people uh, in government and at the State Department, they said, wow, how'd you think of that? You know, it's just instinct. That's funny. I feel like I, I use the same approach with my five-year-old daughter. You know, you can't just demand that they do what you say. You kind of have to have those sticks, or the, the carrots, right, and, and really treat them like a customer. <laughs> I've got 11-year-old twins. I hear you, George. Totally. <laughs> so, so now I'll bounce around your career a little bit to kind of, you know, take it from different points. So because you, you use the same playbook um, at, at most of your organizations, and I'm curious if this was style difference or if it was on purpose. It was this inverted pyramid from vision down to an execution, with execution being the small one. But then for your for your clean networks, it was it was upside down, with the execution being much much bigger. Was was that on purpose or is that just a style difference of your playbook? So I've used that same playbook of and it's, you're right. It's shaped like a pyramid: vision, mission, values, team rules, long term goals, strategy, all boiled down to execution. I've used that in dead companies ever since I was at General Motors, you know, since I was a VP there. And and when we created, you know, GMF Robotics, which is now the largest manufacturer of industrial robots, all the way through RAS, the computer software. I used it when I was chairman of the board of Purdue. And, of course, you know, uh, Reba, DocuSign, all that. And um, so sometimes I change the color or invert it, <laughs> just, you know. Just for a little change. A little flavor, and, but you're but consistent still. But what's, what's funny is like, got, you know, I've got a bunch of guys who've worked with me, uh, you know, across multiple, you know, companies. I brought a lot of them to the State Department. And, 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 you know, one guy, Mark Carlson, who's been with me from General Motors at everything thing I've done, he just goes, all right, Croc, just add water, stir, here we go, playbook, run the play. Mm. And, it, and it works. And you tweak it over time in terms of different nuances, but the basic framework works. That's fantastic. And, and let's focus in on Ariba because you're part of that co-founding team. This is a, a you know blank canvas. It's a really new new market completely. Um, you're you're not you're in the kind of a, a middle. You're, you've you've got your belt under your legs under you from GM and other and starting another company. Um, how much of your kind of leadership principles and everything were already formed in rock versus are you now learning on the job, figuring things out as you go? Well, I think the way I look at it is, you know, I've always jumped in water over my head, so to speak. Um, and, and that's how you learn the most by getting bloodied in the battle. So I think the way to look at it is my transformational journey has been a you know uh high velocity and you make a lot of mistakes along the way too and that's when you learn the most and by the way when you're jumping water over your head that's an adrenaline rush and it almost after a while becomes addicting so i think that's one of the first steps to becoming a transformational leader so you know add it up all along the way but it really does It, it you know a lot goes back to when i was um at purdue a lot of things I learned in leadership positions in the Sigma Chi fraternity. And then, you know, when I'm a VP at General Motors at 26, you talk about jumping water over your head. So you just keep 
adding those, uh, you know, those different plays and you're learning all along. You know, the other important thing, too, is my mom would always say, the best way to learn is from your mistakes. And the best way to learn that is OPE, other people's experience. She mm. said, you know, so I've always been blessed with great mentors, and I'm a big believer uh, in mentorship. That's one of the reasons why I created this company called the Global Mentor Network. And, you know, my mom said, you'll have time enough to make mistakes on your own. So I think it's a combination of mentoring, jumping in water over your head, and just being curious, I think. I love nothing more than sharing the many mistakes that I've made with others so that they can learn from them. It's, it's a real pleasure, right? Yeah, and you know what? When you're mentoring somebody, the most important thing is to talk about your fears, your failures, and your flaws. That's what mentees want to know. Mm. And, and so that's really important. And by the way, also, I always say the most non-intuitive uh, advice I always give young fathers is talk about your mistakes because that takes the pressure off these young guys and, it, and, and they're going to have a lot of it. It also teaches them to take risks and it's okay I'll to write, fail. I'll write that one down. My, my wife is going to like that. You know, I, I tend to think that I'm just always right and always perfect, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when you moved over to state, from the outside, I would think that that's a big shift in, in, in a lot of aspects of your career and your life. You know, what, uh, what was that change like and what lessons did you learn from moving to the Department of State? First of all, I've had the blessing of living the all-American dream growing up in small town Ohio and all that. Um, so to have the opportunity to give back to our great nation was, was really a great honor and something I couldn't pass up in terms of running U.S. economic diplomacy. You know, one of the things that really struck my curiosity was, are these same principles that worked in the business world, that worked in the nonprofit world, that worked in higher education, that were so successful in doing a lot of transformations, would that work in government? And what I found out, the same principles apply. As a matter of fact, they're superpowers. You know, it all starts with building a high-performance team. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned in my career is that diversity of thought and having a team of different temperaments, talents, and convictions is the catalyst for genius. So when I brought these 12 guys from Silicon Valley and, and combined them with these amazing uh, career foreign service officers and civil service who can speak four to seven languages, work their tail off, their North Stars national security. It was like magic. It was like a 60-60 deal. That was an amazing experience. That is also why I'm such a big uh, pusher that my advice to young people is go take a stint in government. And by the way, we mm. need more people from the private sector. And when I mean private sector, I don't mean lawyers, not even bankers. They're, I call those guys wealth transfer guys. What <laughs> we need is wealth creation people, people who manufacturing or high tech, because what's going on, it's all about economic statecraft these days and tech statecraft. There's more operators that can get things more done. More operators, right? yeah. yeah. And, and you're absolutely right, George, because that was the other thing, what I saw clearly, is there's a tremendous gap between policy and execution. And as we know, you can have the greatest policy or the greatest strategy in the world, but if you can't execute, you're going to lose every time. Mm 
you can have an okay policy, okay strategy, but if you can out execute everybody else, you're going to win every time. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the dirty secret among strategists is that strategy parts actually kind of easy. It's all the rest of the stuff that's, it's hard to get done. Mm-hmm. And, and so now, um, you know, you've been tasked to chair the global tech security commission at the Atlantic council's global China hub. What's that all about? That sounds important. And I'd, I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, this is, this is uh, a tremendous and unique as the backing of the white house, both sides of the aisle. And so, you know, think of the 9-11 commission, uh, you know, how big that is. It's a two-year commission. But what makes it different is it's an international commission. We'll have commissioners from 15 different countries. We'll also have commissioners representing 15 of the most strategic national security uh, tech sectors. And so the mission is to develop the global tech security strategy for the free world, and also to develop offensive and defensive strategies in each one of those tech sectors to uh, advance freedom and combat techno-authoritarianism. So it's really very much a continuum of that mission that we were on um, at the State Department. And, you know, being able to put something like this together it's really tough for a government to do. So having a private sector led, I think, is going to actually allow us to move really fast. And each one of those commissioners will build their own advisory council of 10 to 15 experts in either that country or in that specific tech sector. So at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're creating a movement to advance freedom through the adoption of trusted technology. Hmm. You know, given these roles that you're playing, do you, you must just pontificate and think about the moment in time that we're at right now, right? Some people will label it the fourth industrial revolution, uh, you know, whether you want to label it that or not, it, it seems that we're in this great moment of, of change. And if we don't address it the right way, we can end up in, in a bad spot. You know, what, what do you, how do you think about this moment in time? Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because after a while, your pattern recognition just kicks in, you know, like back in the early 80s when we when we started GMF Robotics, you know, that was a whole technology paradigm shift. They had these things called NC controllers. You know, when we started RASDA, computer-aided engineering, it was workstations. You know, Ariba, we were the first enterprise application to be written on the internet. That was another way. DocuSign, it was, oh, all of a sudden now you got cloud and mobile. And now I look at this paradigm shift right now, and I see this wave coming. And this wave uh, where citizens are waking up to China's authoritarian regime and their doctrine of retaliation, intimidation, coercion, this is a huge paradigm shift. And I can tell you what, they have no respect uh, for human life, for human rights. Uh, for the environment, uh, for sovereignty of nations, for rule of law. And, and they want to spread their techno-authoritarians. And you can see it. And by the way, TikTok is one of the ways that they do that. There's a lot of other ways. But the way I look at it is this is that inflection point that we have to step up and do something. Because if there's anything I learned at the State Department, this democracy, this 200-year-plus experiment that we're living in, it's only an experiment in the natural order of things is the bad king 
the dictator and the emperor. That's the laws of physics. And you have mm. to fight every day to keep those freedoms. And the other thing that something I really saw is that if it wasn't for the United States, there'd be 100 countries that wouldn't even taste freedom. So now we've got a big threat upon us. And the Chinese Communist Party represents a real and urgent threat to democracies around the world because they're dictating a dictator out of the box with their technology surveillance tools and their money. Those are great points. And it doesn't come for free. And, and it really democracy only really works the more that we all participate in it. Yes. So, you know, as, as we think about those C-level executives that are out there, you know, we, I have the pleasure of working with them at both Enterprise and Mid-Market. And I know they're already being vigilant about so many things. They're trying to maintain their culture. They're trying to stay the market leader, maintain yeah. margin, cash flow. What responsibility do these business owners and C-level executives have and what can they be doing to, to help? preserve this trust and in, in our, our yeah. IP and innovation, all of it. They can do a lot. And by the way, I had really great experience with all kinds of CEOs of the State Department, particularly during COVID, like when we were repatriating citizens all over the world. And, and I was calling up, you know, the CEOs of Delta and United and UPS and FedEx, and they were helping us get PPE and everything. But um, they can do a lot. message I would give to CEOs is what I'm seeing out there, and that is this. Some of the most prominent board members are demanding from their CEOs a China contingency plan because what they've seen is they saw what happened with Putin's bloody invasion in Russia, and 300 of the top global companies had to pull out all the way, lost hundreds of billions of dollars, and they had no plan on the shelf how to do this. And now they look at China and his clamp down on the private sector, extreme lockdowns of 500 million people on COVID over there. You know, his aggression with uh, Taiwan, the real estate market collapsing, him getting unlimited power, the potential for him to nationalize uh, American companies over there. And, you know, this is an inflection point. And, and so these... CEOs have to have a China contingency plan because, the, you know, the boards, our fiduciary duty to our shareholders is to mitigate risk. So we have on the shelf, you know, a plan if there's a cyber breach. Well, this is a big risk and you've got to have a plan. So I'm seeing these guys demand it. And so then what the CEO does is he'll go to his executive VP. So go to his EVP of supply chain, sales, finance. And they'll each kind of prepare a chapter in this China contingency plan. And then when it gets presented, you know, to the board, you know, it's not like something a board, you know, they don't like vote on it like an annual share. They just kind of nod their heads. So in other words, it's blessed. And then the smart CEO begins the implementation because, and I penned an article in Fortune about this. And the way I ended it, I said, look, when the dreaded becomes the inevitable, it's time to develop a plan and execute on it. So this is key. And one of the things that's happening at the Kroc Institute is we're getting uh, a lot of requests. What does the China contingency plan look like? Do you have a checklist? So we're putting together, we're putting together something for boards and for CEOs and outlining the checklist to follow because there's a lot of nuances uh, in that you don't want to miss, you know, one of the key prongs. 
Yeah, the easier you can make it for them, the better, right? And as a consultant, I love playbooks and check checklists. Uh, you know, what I find interesting is uh, amongst many of our other episodes, there's a common theme of how important resiliency is in your strategy, how important sustainability is. And, and if you're going to address those, there's no way you're going to avoid the China contingency, uh, you know, based off of everything you, I'm hearing you, from you. You have to. And I'll tell you what CEOs can really do to help is, first of all, pull your supply chains out of China because they're a risk. Um, they really are. And make sure that you've got alternative places. The other thing is, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I really talk a lot about this in terms of the average American citizen. And also a lot of companies don't realize that they're financing China's surveillance state that enables what many countries, including our own, call genocide and what the United Nations calls crimes against humanity. And so these boards have a, a moral responsibility and a fiduciary duty to divest from these Chinese companies that are controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. So that's, that's an important factor, number one. The other thing is to implement security safeguards for intellectual property theft. I mean, I had that experience at Ariba. Alibaba took a lot of our intellectual property. And by the way, I remember going over to China a few years later. And I said, hey, when are you guys going to stop stealing our technology? And they just kind of laughed and chuckled. They said, look, we, you know, we don't really have a word for, like, stealing in, in uh, <laughs> Chinese. You know, if it's there, you just take it. It goes, it's your guy's fault and problem. You're not protecting your intellectual property. And China does it a lot of different ways, a lot of technology transfer. And by the way, if you're going to build a plant in China, you're not just handing them the blueprints. You're teaching them the process engineering. You're training their workforce. And they're yeah. going to come back and compete against you. Mm. And so many companies have made that, made that mistake. You're just building your own innovator's dilemma for yourself by, by embedding over there. Um, so, Keith, you're making a lot of sense. We're coming up on our time. One question I, I love to finish with is, you know, sure. throughout your life, from, from, your, from your dad's machine shop to where you are now as a father, as a leader, what's the best advice you've ever received? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, I remember when I came back uh, for Thanksgiving, I'm drinking beers with my dad. I came back from Purdue. You know, I'm like 21 years old or whatever. And he goes to me, Keith, you ever feel like you're in a jam you can't get out of? You know, like you're you're getting, you know, you ever get that feeling? I go, what do you mean, Dad? He goes, and he was a boxer in the army. He goes, like you're getting pummeled in the ring and you can't get out. I go, oh, yeah, that warm feeling. He goes, you know, there's only one He goes, there's one way to get out of it. It works every time. I go, what's that? He goes, mock yourself out. Now, he didn't use big words like self-deprecating humor or anything like that. It was, came from Germany. He said, mock yourself out. It works every time. He goes, just <laughs> do it. You know, I'm like, oh, okay. And then I remember walking up the stairs. It's late night. He puts his arm around me, and he goes, and, you know, um, don't mock out other people. He goes, that hurts their feelings. And it's not funny. I think that, and so I think a sense of humor is a superpower too, and 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 a self-deprecating one because a way to build trust is to talk about your fears, your fears, your failures, and your flaws because you make yourself vulnerable, and when you make yourself vulnerable, 
I'll tell you about 95% of the time, people reciprocate in kind. And that causes a connection. So, you know, if your most strategic asset in the business world or any diplomatic world is, is trusted relationships and everything is divided by time, your ability to build trust quickly is a key skill. That's huge. And it sounds like a, a great relationship with your father. Uh, Keith, thanks so much for everything you've done for your thanks, service. Sir. Thanks for sharing your wisdom here. Really appreciate having you here. You got it. All the best to you, George. And, and thanks so much. You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until next time.